Well, we are back in our study. I, I think once upon a nightmare, I thought I'd get this thing done in three Sundays. <laughs> There's no way, especially today. So today in our slow study of the signs presented in John's Gospel, we are now at the seventh sign, the raising of the man from the dead. It is a well-known story, but as with the other signs, we're only going to do an overview of the text. I was talking with uh, Jesse Schroeder Friday night, and I said again it was an overview, and he goes, you do an overview? And I go, mm, I know it's not really my nature, but that's my fight is to do an overview, and I have to with this text. So I ask you to take the time and do a deeper study during the week, this text. It's just so much in here, and... There's so much rich truth buried in all of this that it takes time for that to bubble up and, and to be applied in your life. So as a reminder, just as John is presenting a series of signs in his gospel to bring first his disciples and then us to a strong point of belief and faith. Remember in John 20, 30 through 31, John helps us to remember, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So, so far we've covered Jesus turning water into the best wine, healing a dying man, healing a paralyzed man, feeding thousands walking on water, gives sight to the blind. Now we turn to Jesus raising a man from the dead. Now, this is not the only time recorded in Scripture that somebody has been raised from the dead. We find two events recorded in Luke, Luke 7, 11 through 17, where Jesus raised a widow's son. Now, that was, it was a completely unique environment that occurred. From Capernaum, Jesus was traveling from there, traveled to Nain to the south. Simple event, just to travel. But on the way into the town, out was coming a funeral procession. A son of a widow. Now, we don't have all the details, but you understand, too, that for the widow's son to die, it could also mean this is the end of her true family support. Her son's is dead. And her being a widow, she doesn't have a husband. And in that culture, the strain on her and the risk for her being destitute would be high. So the young man died, son of the widow. And Jesus, in the procession, stopped the procession and, put it, and raised him from the dead. And I love the phrase, and gave him back to the widow, his mother. Very intimate time, very personal. Again, Luke 8, 40 through 56, you have Jairus, remember him? Leader of the local synagogue, 12-year-old daughter is dying. At that point, now you understand how the sequence goes, that's when Jesus was interrupted by the woman that had the extreme bleed and literally interrupted his progression and, and his procession to going to this individual that's desperately needing help, who's at the point of death, and he turns and deals with the 
and ministers to the woman with the bleed. So while speaking, messengers came to tell the father, the child is dead, don't bother the master, leave him alone. Jesus went to the house, but again, a very unique situation. Only allowed Peter, John, and James, and the girl's parents to go up to where the girl was. He makes the comment to the crowd that was there because of the morning, told the crowd that she's only asleep, and they sarcastically laughed, thought he was a psychotic nutcase. He raised her from the dead, but said, tell no one this, but gave this child back to the parents. So we're in John chapter 11. We have to ask first, where are we? And what's happened prior to this chapter or what's occurring at this point? So we find in chapter 10, verse 22, take a look at that one. This is kind of how everything leads up to other conversations going on. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter, verse 23. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So we're in the temple in Jerusalem at this time. There's a crowd surrounding him, but they're not going to be asking for more proof and more evidence that he is the Messiah to surrender their lives to his lordship. No, they wanted him to declare himself as Messiah, as ruler, and overthrow Rome's power and set them free. That was their focal point. So we continue, verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That's it. That snaps the crowd. They've had it. They can't take this anymore. So verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man that we see in front of us, make yourself God. Some more confrontation continues in verse 39. And again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Not a good scene, okay? So there's a huge threat on his life. There's an intent desire to kill him. And in verse 40, you start seeing even more trans transition or some move more movement. He went away again across the Jordan to a place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. So the pressure is increasing. The hatred against Jesus is building to the point where they're picking up stones to kill him. I mean, if you think about stoning somebody, the whole intent was not to just to bruise them up, it's to actually execute them. 
So they tempted to kill Jesus. He just moves away, moves away from the area and gets away from the, the hot scene. So we move to our text in John 11. I know that most of you have read about the story about Lazarus being raised from the dead. And all I really want to do is amplify a few pieces because it's, it's lengthy. It's most of the chapter. But again, I ask you, take this and go home and do a deeper study. There is so much in this text, so much that we can apply. And if you only take what I give you, you're just getting kind of the cliff notes of the real deep parts of the text. I wouldn't do that. So verse 1, we start, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. You know, you think about it, today it's common that we would hear about those that are sick or those that are, are dying, and it's a common occurrence for us as humans because we're all under the curse, the sin of Adam. We all know that we all are born, and one day we will die. We may die quickly in the night. I guess that's our hope. But then we may be sick unto death like Lazarus. You're seeing the terminality of your life coming. Truth out of this, Lazarus lives in Bethany. And again, as you study the scriptures, take where's Bethany? Pull a, pull a map out. Well, it's about two miles east of Jerusalem. Hmm. Key point, keep that in mind. With his two sisters, Mary and Martha, so we continue a little bit further in verse 1. The village of Mary and her sister Martha, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now that's interesting because here John is telling you something that's going to occur in chapter 12, but he just wanted to make sure you, you're kind of keeping the flow going and going, well, we got a situation with Mary and Martha a little bit further, but just kind of keep that in context because we know these people. We already know Mary, Luke 10, remember? She was very frustrated. Well, sorry, other way, we know Mary because she was at, <laughs> get this right, right? We know Mary because she was at Jesus' feet learning from everything she can humbly before Jesus. What was Martha doing? She was working hard in the kitchen, trying to prepare the meal, frustrated that her sister wasn't helping her. She was all alone in the kitchen. So she gripes at Jesus and says, why don't you tell her to stop listening to you and help me in the kitchen? I'm alone. Well, you're kind of going, wow, that's kind of an abrupt situation. I mean, she's kind of a little, little grumpy here, right? Go do a home study this week and go to chapter 12. And monitor and look at the difference in the life change in Martha alone. Because this will be after her brother is raised from the dead, and you're going to see her with a complete different attitude. And she's just not feeding Jesus. She's feeding Jesus and a whole lot of others. And there's not one single complaint. She's a humble servant. It's amazing to see just the learning and what happens when someone interacts and, and just deals with Jesus, how they grow. So Mary and Martha send word to Jesus that Lazarus is very sick. Don't miss the beginning of verse 1 with the two words, a man. Okay? As humans, we have to keep this in reality, kind of keep in check, kind of holding. There's a reason why these words are there. 
Dr. Boyce in his commentary brings this and kind of helps us to grasp it a little bit deeper. He says, in the first place, they need not have been surprised for the simple reason that the man whom Jesus loves is, after all, still just a man. And it is in the nature of being a man to suffer bodily ailments. In one excellent sermon on this text, Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote, The love of Jesus does not separate us from the common necessities and infirmities of human life. Men of God are still men. The covenant of grace is not a charter of exemption from consumption, rheumatism, or asthma. So let us learn from this and not be surprised when we or those we love suffer illness. The Bible says in the words of one of Job's comforters, man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. It also says with absolute clarity, man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, Hebrews 9.27. So Dr. Boyce continues, Moreover, we should not be surprised at illness, for we know that it often is God's way of speaking to our hearts and of, of leading us on in the Christian life. Ever think about that? We can also learn from the two sisters. And see, these are pieces, if you just kind of read quick, you, you miss it. Notice what the two sisters do. They talk to Jesus. They get more to Jesus. They, they inform the Lord of the need. There are so many times when life hits hard that we do forget to go first to Jesus, as we should, always, bringing all things to Jesus at all times. The examples are many as we read through the scriptures of the saints of God bringing their needs before God. So let's go deep with the words that the sisters deliver to Jesus. Verse 3. Lord, he whom you love is ill. Okay. Here you go. As you go deep study, you start picking words up and you're going, wow, that's an interesting statement. Jesus loved Lazarus. It's more than they love Jesus, but that Jesus loved them and Lazarus, their brother. Never forget in your distress and prayers that the Lord Jesus loves you. His love cannot be bested by any man. He is the creator God. Again, quoting Dr. Boyce, it is that he who made us and controls all circumstances knows best and is well able to direct even sickness and death to his glory. Now hold this thought. For what's about ready to occur might shake you a bit. You go, oh, wait a minute, I'm missing something. John 15, 13, keep this in your back of your mind. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. That's true love. That's the love that Jesus has for Lazarus, Mary, Martha. Verse 4, but when Jesus heard it, he said, catch this. This is, illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. What? That's good. Is that the end of the story? Lazarus lives. We just move on. Keep going. 
That's good, right? That's a good statement? We're in the clear? Nah, wait. There's more. The story, Lazarus dies. This, this is interesting. You're, you're kind of, wait a minute. What's Jesus looking at that we're not always looking at sometimes in these great illnesses? We're not like God, for we do not know what lies ahead, and we do not understand the outcome. What we do know is at any point, whatever happens will glorify God, and that the Son of God may be glorified. All of these signs that we have studied and still have ahead of us are to glorify the Son and to help us grow in our, our faith, grow us up. You remember this point in chapter 4, the healing of the official son? Remember that? I don't remember how far back we were. He assumed that Jesus had to be present to heal his son. Not true. Remember the father said, Sir, come down before my son dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The son was healed at that exact time, especially when the messengers the next day met the father and said, Yeah, and he compared the time to what? Yeah, Jesus didn't have to be there. He healed. So is that what Jesus is going to do right now? Kind of do the healing from afar? Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. We covered that. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, underscore, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What? What? Why two days? Why longer? What? Now you're perked up, right? Now you're going, i gotta, I got to get, get going with this story. I was not expecting that. <laughs> when I first read this a long time ago, I was like, uh, well, wait a minute. This is like incongruent with what's going on. He delayed two days longer. Verse 5 prepares us for the reason that Jesus would delay. Love. He loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. He delayed to show his love. Again, Dr. Boyce brings a, a, a clean point. Sickness and death are not incompatible with Christ's love. True? We see here that love is connected to the delay. We have all experienced God's delay in the answer, but there is something that we cannot see in the delay, God's purpose. You ever gotten frustrated? You pray and it, no answer, nothing? You get kind of like a silent area, you know, what's the old phrase we used to say? Crickets? Is God not concerned? Well, from our perspective, our selfish perspective, we might come to that conclusion. That's not the conclusion. God loves us. And again, back to the point that Jesus loves, God's purpose in delays is multifaceted. We can't see all these elements. A delay will cause us to draw closer to Him, trust Him more deeply, seek His good, not our own. Some delays are long, but still, God's purpose is always to grow us and to mature us. Go back to Job and you're thinking. Job's delay was long, filled with great suffering, and God was glorified. In all that we do, we're to glorify Jesus, not ourselves. Now, that's hard because we're always checking ourselves. What's, what's it for me? I think on Paul's thorn in the flesh, some kind of suffering. We don't really have a true 
consensus of what it exactly was, but 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, Paul says, so to keep me from being conceited, Paul's already telling you right off the bat, this is the purpose, this is why he did this. For me to be conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, he brought it to Jesus, that it should leave me. But he said to me, Jesus said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for the power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's reverse logic, isn't it? It's absolutely upside down. It's the upside down world. But that's true. When you are the weakest, what's it mean you're going to do? You're going to lean on Jesus. You'll surrender everything to Jesus because you're going, I got nothing. Actually, I do like those times when God does it in my life. I hate him. Okay, you got that, right? But I also love him because I know what he's doing. So Paul brought his suffering to Jesus, and the reply may not be something we would think of, but Paul was clear. Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you and my power, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's usually not where my thoughts would go. i got to do something here. Now back to our text in verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Oh, that probably broke the ice, shattered the silence. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you were going there again. I, um, hmm. We're missing something here. Did you not just remember what, what occurred in their desire to kill you and you're, we're, we're going back? Let's think on this a little bit, Jesus. Let's have a little meeting, okay? Come here. Let's, let's have a chat. No. So after two days more, Jesus breaks the mood and calls to go back to Judea. The disciples have a very logical response. I think it's logical. Why would you want to go back to the place they tried to kill you? What sense does that make to go right into the hands of the hateful leaders and the people? Yeah, what are you thinking, Jesus? Missing something? They don't know at this point, but it is to bring glory to God and to the Son, and they don't understand what must occur, but in a short while they will. Not only what occurs with Lazarus, but what's going to occur to Jesus. Now, this is a condensed time period. As you're reading in John, especially if you read in Mark, you're going to realize there's a tremendous amount of text to cover this very short time period. But it's an intense time period. There's much going on. Jesus now explains why they must return, but the, he uses words that in their thinking means one thing, but Jesus means something completely different. Verse 9, Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? Huh? What are we talking about here? If anyone walks in the day... He does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the light, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Logical response. 
the disciples said to him, Lord, I mean, if, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant talk, taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let's go to him. You know, time. Time is something that Jesus is talking about here. It comes and goes so quickly. So Jesus, Jesus' reply starts with a question that everyone can answer. Are there not 12 hours in a day? Yes. Now, what's the 12 hours? Huh? This is where you've got to do a little digging. 12 hours in that time, the Jews divided the day in two equal parts. 12 hours, 12 hours. 12 hours day, 12 hours night. So it makes sense. He didn't say you got 11 hours, did he? No. He said you've got 12. Did he say you have 13 hours? No. He said you have 12. You have a limited. It's a tight boundary. So keep in mind that at that time, there's also very little artificial light. So he's using a very logical understanding. There's not street lights everywhere. There's hardly any light whatsoever. So when the sun's down, you stopped. Side note, Jesus' crucifixion. What happened at 12 noon went to 3 o'clock? Darkness. Not darkness like a lunar eclipse. Darkness like the lights went out, and it did. I can't imagine anybody being able to move from where they were when the lights went out. What an impact. Lights came on, and Jesus made the declaration that it's finished. There is limited opportunity for work while it is still called day, so Jesus is presenting first a sense of urgency. And with the limit of time, then we also realize the time we have must be spent wisely. You and I don't know what our clock time is. Remember Rick Holland a lot of times would teach us very simple, this is our expiration date, is on our birth certificate in heaven. God knows our time. How many commercials have you heard this week that talk about do this, keep this, do this, exercise this, kill yourself over here, really not, and you're going to live longer? Even people espousing. Does that get you one more hour? No, you will die right on time. Sorry. You'll make that time. When time goes, it's gone. So if someone in that time would go walking at night, there's a great risk of stumbling or falling. So Jesus is moving to a deeper point that his time is limited and is also very short. Going back will mean his death, and he is fully aware of that fact. He's not deterred. He's moving to the cross. Verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to wake him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. We don't need to go. Now Jesus had spoken of his death and that they thought that he meant that it was his rest to sleep. Then Jesus plainly said, Lazarus, you see that? He's having to help these guys through. For Jesus and the believer, death is not something to be feared, but understood as Jesus does. It is sleep. You ever thought of that? In God's perspective for the believer, death is sleep. 
It's not something to be fearful, not something to run, not something to be anxious about. It's sleep. I mean, how many of you have gotten totally anxious because, oh my gosh, I've got to go to bed in an hour? And you're, you're up all night because you, you, you don't want to sleep. No. We go, sleep? Yes! Oh, I hope it's a straight night all the way through. I don't want to wake up those five times. I hit, a, <laughs> I hit a bump on that one, didn't I? It's temporary. Only a marker of a transition of eternity with Jesus our Lord. That's all it is. He tries to convey this, but the men think that Lazarus is sleeping and everything else will be fine because he's going to get better. He's on the mend. This is great. Good. Because when you're, when you're sick and, and you sleep, your body recovers. But what comes next hits them. It also hits us. We're not understanding what can occur. Verse 15. And for the sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. How can Jesus be glad that Lazarus is dead? He knows he's going to raise him from the dead, but far greater than that, the disciples are given another sign to go deep in their belief in their faith. So Jesus directly states, we must go to him. I love this. And I don't anybody, I like Thomas, okay? I don't like the fact we call him Doubting Thomas. I really never liked that. I like this guy. He's like us, okay? With Thomas, he concedes the point that we are all going to die back to Judea where they tried to stone Jesus. That's, <laughs> that's kind of Thomas. Okay, but he's not going weird on this. He's, he's very realistic. Let me back up and do another quote with Dr. Boyce. Jesus is able to raise the dead. Only he can do it. Okay, keep that. No one else can. If a person is sick but not yet dead, good condition, there's a place for physicians. Medicine, coupled with the skill of the doctors and the natural rejuvenating powers of the human body, can do wonders, Right? But if a person is dead, then the doctors are useless. Only the voice of the divine Christ can call forth life and resurrection. Isn't that amazing? Of course. Who can raise from the dead? Only Jesus. Only God can. Verse 16. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go, also go, that we may die with him. Now, I don't see this as a snarky response from Thomas. I see this man looking at full reality going, this is a reality and this is what we're going to be doing. Thomas is standing and stating very clearly the reality and he was already and willing to go. He didn't argue, debate it. He says, let's go. He's quick to move. He's not resisting but putting the fact straight that they are intent on killing Jesus and they will be just as intent on killing his followers. Thomas isn't being just a scaredy cat here. He says, we're following Jesus, and we know what that means. That means we're probably going to die. But let's go. That's who we follow. We're following Jesus. So they arrive in Bethany, verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, remember, I talked to you about the fact you've got to kind of keep dates and ages of people and for healings and a lot of things. Four days is critical. But why the fourth day? It's kind of interesting. The Jews believe that the soul hovered around the body for three days after death, hoping to re-enter it. 
But on the fourth day, that noticing that the body was beginning to decompose, the soul departed. Only then would a death be considered completely irreversible. Does that make sense? Where does that come in scriptures? Nowhere. Because didn't the, the thief dying on the cross next to Jesus, Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise, not in four days, when we check and make sure you really are dead with your legs busted and you can't breathe anymore and you're suffocated? No, but that's the four days. It's strange. But for sure, that also tells us he is really dead, right? I don't know. Sorry, that came up as a quote from a movie. No, he's not mostly dead. He, no, never mind. You got it. <laughs> Previously, I asked that you keep a keen eye on the age of someone when they're being healed or the number of days an individual is dead. There's, there's evidence there. Here we are told that Lazarus has been dead for four days. His sister later will declare to Jesus when Jesus commands that the tomb be opened, she goes, mm-mm-mm. We've got decomp going on, and he, oh, he smells. Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. They are very close to Jerusalem, but still far enough away not to draw direct attention. So Martha is the first to know that Jesus is coming. She went out, verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. That's tradition, that the mourners would stay seated while the, those mourning with them would be standing. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had or been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give. Martha started with a little rebuke to Jesus for not coming sooner, for if he had, her brother would not have died. But still... Martha is a woman of faith. She knows that whatever God wills, and Jesus asks, it will happen. But she doesn't have a resurrection in her thinking. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Martha is not aware that Jesus is not talking about some future event. He's talking about now. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said, yes. Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And Jesus now explains to Martha that he is the life. And for the dead the resurrection. Jesus then asked her plainly, do you believe this? And her reply is a strong affirmation of her faith and trust in Jesus. At this point, a note against our culture. You also notice something too that Jesus asked. He said, do you have faith? Our culture today says, do you have feelings? Does it feel right to you? Would you want to work on those feelings and make them better? No. Faith in the object who Jesus is, the Son of God. Verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying, in private, <laughs> didn't work well, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus, 
had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Well, that ended the private moment, didn't it? The herd went with her, and she was supposed to have a private consultation with Jesus. Verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, very respectful. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in the spirit and greatly troubled. We know that Jesus is the God-man, but at times you and I forget that he is man with life and emotion. And I cannot imagine a scene where you get this, this emotional weeping and wailing of all these people there. It, 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 to me, it's, it's just overwhelming. Isaiah was correct in his statement in Isaiah 53.3. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse 34 keeps moving the scenario. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? That's an interesting statement. That was the last sign that we worked through, and they were aware of it. Well, he did blind, but what, resurrection, raising from the that's not possible? Couldn't heal him? Interesting. Verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and the stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone, Martha said. Here's that wonderful statement. The, sis the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. Well, that's kind of verification that he's gone. Why did Jesus ask for the tomb to be open? Any general thoughts? How about to get Lazarus out? I mean, could you, poor Lazarus, what if he was raised and the tomb's closed? What, is he banging on the stone going, someone let me out of here? I mean, Jesus is moving the event along quickly. In verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God. In this resurrection, they will see the glory of God manifested. But as we will see, some did not believe. A man was raised four days. He stinks. And he's alive. And no, we don't believe Jesus. See? Verse 41. So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around me, so it's clear, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. His hands his feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth, Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Could you picture that scene? 
I don't understand how Lazarus is walking. He's mummified. I mean, he, he can't see anything. It's over his face. What a scene. And Jesus has to go, <clears throat> could you unwrap him? He's struggling here to get out, okay? I, I, just, I just love a little of the nice, unbelievable humor that God kind of has to help people from their shock. Kind of, You need to help him. Don't stand there with your mouth open. He needs help. So Jesus clearly and loudly directs his request to his Father. It is clearly presented to all that the relationship with Jesus and the Father is true. He is the Messiah. Many of the Jews, verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, comma, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And didn't like it either. You know, we know that the story continues as the religious leaders are now at a breaking point with Jesus. The word's getting out that Jesus raised Lazarus. And as you keep reading, the religious leaders start working on an idea. We've got to find a way to kill Lazarus to shut him up. I mean, this is a mess. I mean, you got a guy that was dead. Everybody knew it. It was close enough to Jerusalem. A lot of people knew the family, so everybody was there. So it's now messages come back. Lazarus is standing around talking and telling everybody about what Jesus did. What do you got to do now? You got to shut the guy up. So let's figure out a way we can kill him. Man. So what do we take away from this brief overview? Jesus has the power over life and death. He is able to heal those he chooses. He is able to raise from the dead those he chooses. So what's our part? Trust in him fully that his plan, though we may never see or understand it in our lifetime, is perfect based on his love for us and his glory. It's not about us. It's about the creator God. His delays in our lives is for his purpose. So what do we do? Seek his will and strength to endure. Jesus told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Do you believe that? Is your faith in the one who died for you strong and immovable? Trust him completely and live not by your own strength. Let's pray. Jesus, you are very strong in helping us to understand that one, time is short. None of us know the day or the hour. So we need to be ready and at the task of doing your will at all times. Help us to see too through this complete text that when the hard times hit, our health fails, or there's death that's close to us. We don't put up our hands and just wonder what in the world is going on. We know it's your purpose, it's your will, it's your desire, it's your plan, it's not ours. As humans, we struggle when the plan doesn't answer our own wish and will. 
Help us to grow as men and women in the Word to trust You more and more and to know that You are the one who loves us. Yes, there might be some times of delay in response or the, or the delay may not have a response that we like, but we know absolutely it is for our good. It's Your purpose for our life. And overall, every inch of it, You love us. Help us to be dependent upon You in all things. Help us to have the faith that grows and continually can trust You. Help us to see when Paul prayed three times, You said, My grace is sufficient. We never heard from Paul again about the issue. He was satisfied. He trusted You. And he knew You loved him. Help us to go in the same way faithful to all ends of the world and faithful to the end of our life. God, we love you and know that you love us. In Jesus, amen.